the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is the June 2023 Literature Review Series, and the episode leads off with featured articles. That's right, a six-pack of studies highlighting some of the best articles of the month. Then the discussion shifts to articles focusing on cardiology, infectious diseases, and PADIS, pain, agitation, and delirium. So uh, before closing out, of course, with the category featuring articles voted on by you, friends in the pod, in the pharmacist featured section, aka the front of the fridge. If you want to vote, if you if you listen to these articles, you're like, wait, 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 I didn't know I could have a part in helping choose what we talk about. That's exactly right. Uh, be sure to follow on Twitter or Instagram at Pharmacy to Dose. June 2023 brought the heat, friends. Um, in terms of research, publications to highlight on this episode, very excited, but also want to give they get shouted out in the episode, but want to give another shout out to um all of the guests who have contributed to the 2023 Literature Review Series up to this point. So that would be Austin Rowe, Rhea Soltau, Brent Tucker, Kelly OJ, and then of course our, our guest today, Bo Blake. Um, Want to shout him out because uh, as we uh, as the July series starts, there's going to be uh, two guests on each episode. So I need to shout out for the the single guest host, right? Because they're just doing way more work. It takes more time, effort, and energy. Um, so be sure to recognize all the awesome effort they do as we transition to two guests. So a huge, huge thank you to uh, to everyone who's been a part of the Literature Review series up into this point. But now, very excited to get started with our June 2023 episode. So let's get going. So very lucky to be joined by Bo Blake. And now Bo received his pharmacy degree at Drake University and is the PGY2 critical care pharmacy resident at Aurora Metro in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Bo, thanks for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on, Nick. Good to be here. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, right, for, for future literature review series episodes, we'll be going to two guest hosts an episode. Um... So I want to give another big shout out, right, to Bo and the other hosts of the 2023 Literature Review Series because having a co-host significantly reduces the amount of work. So give it up to to everybody who came on here as a solo guest host because we're splitting it up, right? So a little more work um, to help all of all the friends of the pod. So huge, huge thank you, Bo, you included. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, the reason that we are here, the June 2023 Literature Review Series. And of course, we have to get started with our featured articles, our six-pack of studies. We're going to pop a top here. So, Bo, take it away 
And we're going to start our discussion off by looking to identify a new group that could benefit from thrombolytic treatment of acute ischemic stroke. Sure. Thank you, Nick, for the introduction. And yeah, I'd like to get right into it. So the study I'm going to be discussing today is dual antiplatelet therapy versus ultiplase for patients with a minor non-disabling acute ischemic stroke. This is the ARAMIS trial. For a little bit of background on this, the guideline recommended care for ischemic stroke with thrombolytics are indicated for patients with an initial NIHSS of above five, but we're still searching for the optimal treatment regimen in patients with a more minor stroke. The PRISMS trial compared Altiplase versus aspirin alone in patients with minor non-disabling deficits, and these results showed no significant difference in 90-day functional outcomes, but a higher rate of symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage in the Altiplase group. The point and chance trials indicated Safety and efficacy in utilizing DAPS for patients presenting with minor stroke within 24 hours of symptom onset. The ARAMIS trial, published in JAMA, is looking to evaluate whether a two-week course of DAPS would be non-inferior to Altiplase with respect to efficacy and less hemorrhagic events in those presenting with AIS and non-disabling deficits within four and a half hours of symptom onset. This randomized open-label trial was conducted at 38 hospitals within China. Patients had to have an NIH score of less than or equal to 5 and could not have pre-existing deficits or a history of intracranial hemorrhage. Patients were randomized to the Altiplase group, the standard 0.9 milligrams per kilogram dosing regimen, or the DAPT group, which is 300 milligrams of clopidogrel on the first day, followed by 75 milligrams thereafter as well as 100 milligrams of aspirin daily for 10 to 14 days. The primary outcome was an excellent functional outcome at 90 days, defined as a modified Rankin score of 0 to 1. Secondary outcomes were a favorable functional outcome, a change in NIH score at 24 hours, early neurologic improvement at 24 hours, new stroke or other vascular events at 90 days, and 90-day all-cause mortality. In this trial, 760 patients were randomized, with 574 patients being treated in the per-protocol population, with similar baseline characteristics between the Altiplase and DAPT treatment arms. The percentage of patients with low modified Rankin score, 0 to 1, at 90 days were similar between the two groups, with over 90% in both groups having an excellent functional outcome. Secondary outcomes were similar, except that less patients had neurologic deterioration at 24 hours in the DAPT group than in the Altiplase group. Patients in the Altiplase group had a higher risk of intracranial hemorrhage and other bleeding events. DAPT was non-inferior to Altiplase in this trial when given within four and a half hours of stroke onset for the outcome of excellent functional outcome at 90 days. Strengths of this trial included a large sample size and DAPT strategy. A limitation of this trial included a high crossover rate between the two treatments, and this was per the authors. Interestingly, the guidelines were published and recommended DAPT as a standard treatment for this patient population after enrollment for this trial had already begun. The bottom line for this trial, DAPT should be utilized 
when possible in patients that present with non-debilitating acute ischemic stroke with an NIH score less than five. When I work in the emergency department moving forward, I plan to recommend utilizing this regimen to providers as an alternative for patients who may not be able to receive Alteplase or those deemed to potentially be a high bleed risk. So I like that you pointed out that the investigators use that standard Alteplase dosing, Bo, because many of these Chinese studies looking at acute ischemic stroke, they'll utilize sometimes a lower Alteplase dose in some studies. Um, You know, the one thing you noted, the crossover rate, it was a little confusing because it's, it's billed as a crossover as like a protocol violation, but everything I'm seeing is that Uh, The crossover happened because the patients or their authorized representatives or the investigators themselves requested a crossover. So um, a little confused there. And then, you know, there's notably a low rate of ICH here. And when you have stroke mimics, right, that receive thrombolytics, they also have a lower rate of of ICH. And, you know, Bo mentioned the PRISMS trial and that symptomatic ICH rate was about 3.2%, right? So... I think dual antiplatelet therapy is still probably the standard of care here, but um, like Bo mentioned, it certainly appears that thrombolytics appear safe um, in this patient population, which is certainly a question that we're that we're always thinking of. Now, let's shift gears here from breaking up clots to preventing them, and I want to talk about anticoagulation in a specific patient population. Now. One of the things most of us remember in the treatment of patients with cancer is using low molecular weight heparin when treating cancer-associated venous thromboembolism. And with the advent of of DOAC's direct oral anticoagulants, I think the question has been asked for some time if it's safe to use a DOAC in place of low molecular weight heparin, right? Who likes injections if you don't have to? Now, the 2021 CHEST VTE guidelines, they do recommend DOAC treatment, but this was on a basis of like a systematic review meta-analysis and and an RCT with edoxaban, right? The lesser used direct factor 10A inhibitor. And only about one to 5% of enrolled patients had cancer in these large DOAC studies that gained FDA approval for the DOAC treatment of VTE. And that leads us to the CANVAS trial, right? Direct oral anticoagulants versus low molecular weight heparin and recurrent VTE in patients with cancer published in JAMA in 2023. So this was a U.S. multicenter, non-inferiority, unblinded, two-group randomized effectiveness trial that enrolled patients from December 2016 through April 2020. Now, they had this hybrid two-group design, and they included a preference cohort in addition to the randomized cohort. And that was patients declined randomization, but agreed to be followed longitudinally for outcome monitoring right? Depending on which group they, they chose. And that enrolled patients through December, 2017. So it ended a year after, whereas the true research enrolled patients through April of 2020. And the authors describe in the supplementary appendix that they did this to help better, to help enable better understanding of the relative risks and harms for patient specific features so that you're able, when you're talking to patients between the differences, we're going to have some real world data with that. So Adult patients with solid tumors, lymphoma, CLL, or multiple myeloma with advanced disease um, or diagnosed within the last 12 months with a VTE diagnosed within the last 30 days, those patients were enrolled. Now, 
There were lots of exclusion criteria, but key ones I want to point out, acute leukemia, those who received an allogeneic stem cell transplant, or taking medications with known DOAG drug interaction. So examples, protease inhibitors, certain azel antifungals, rifampin, or anti-seizure medications such as phenytoin. Now, the primary outcome was six-month recurrent non-fatal VTE. And 638 patients with similar baseline characteristics were enrolled with a six-month follow-up. Now, of note, of course, COVID slowed enrollment, so the protocol was amended to reduce the sample size, which, of course, also reduced the study power, so keep that in mind. And 140 patients were enrolled in that preference cohort that we talked about. So the DOAC treatment arm met non-inferiority but did not reach superiority for the primary outcome of six-month recurrent VTE rate. There was no difference in major bleeding or mortality, um, but DOAC treatment was associated with an increase in clinically relevant non-major bleeding. So the authors point out some limitations like the unblinded nature of this study, but I think if the CHESS guidelines, right, were comfortable recommending DOAC treatment before on the basis of that evidence we talked about, I think this may confirm it and certainly give us um, a little more data for our uh, cancer patients who are having their care complicated by a VTE. So, Bo, come on back and let's keep thinning our blood and talk about an anticoagulation trial that was first discussed at ESOC in Munich this summer. ELAN trial. This is early versus later anticoagulation for stroke with atrial fibrillation. This was performed by Fisher and colleagues. So, a little bit of background on this trial. When to start anticoagulation post-stroke is a debate that doesn't really have a definitive answer. Many guideline recommendations regarding timing of initiation have varied, and there isn't a true consensus at this time. One common recommendation from the European Heart Rhythm Association guidelines is 1, 3, 6, and 12-day rule, in which anticoagulation is initiated after a transient ischemic attack three days after a minor non-disabling stroke, six days after a moderate stroke, or at least 12 days after a more severe ischemic stroke. The 2021 AHA and ASA guidelines are a little bit more vague, saying it may be reasonable to initiate oral anticoagulation between two and 14 days after this event. But in patients at high risk of hemorrhagic transformation, it may be reasonable to still delay anticoagulation beyond 14 days. The ELAN trial, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, evaluated the safety and efficacy of early initiation DOACs compared with later guideline-directed initiation utilizing imaging-based selection in patients with acute ischemic stroke. This trial was conducted at 103 stroke centers in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Patients diagnosed with an acute ischemic stroke via imaging and atrial fibrillation both a past medical history of or a new in-hospital diagnosis were included. Patients were assigned to receive early or late initiation of a DOAC. The investigators utilized a modified 1, 3, 6, and 12-day rule. Early treatment was defined as initiation within 48 hours of having a minor stroke, within 84 hours of a moderate stroke, and between days 5 and 9 after having a major stroke. Thrombolysis or thrombectomy before randomization was allowed, but therapeutic anticoagulation at stroke onset was not allowed, except for low molecular weight heparin for VTE prevention. Primary outcome was a composite of recurrent stroke, 
systemic embolism, major extracranial bleed, symptomatic intracranial bleed, or vascular death within 30 days post-randomization. Secondary outcomes assessed at 30 and 90 days looked at recurrent stroke, embolism, extracranial bleeding, intracranial hemorrhage, vascular death, and death from any cause, as well as an outcome on the modified Rankin scale. The primary and secondary outcomes were analyzed with the use of a penalized logistic regression model. The authors note that the main aim of this trial was to estimate the effect of early versus late treatment and no hypotheses were tested for superiority or non-inferiority. From November 2017 through September of 2022, 2013 patients were included in the modified intention to treat population. Baseline characteristics between the early and late treatment arms were similar. The median NIH score was five at admission and three at randomization. According to imaging, moderate stroke was the most common in both arms, followed by a minor, and then major stroke. A primary outcome event occurred in 2.9% in the early treatment group and 4.1% in the later treatment group. For secondary outcomes, recurrent ischemic stroke by 30 days occurred in 1.4% of the early group and 2.5% in the late group. Major bleeding, both extracranial and intracranial, occurred in less than 1% of patients in both groups and only 12 patients in total. This trial provided data on the early initiation of anticoagulation after an ischemic stroke comparing outcomes in patients with later initiation of anticoagulation. These results showed that early treatment can be supported if indicated or desired. This trial differs from the timing and optimist trials because participants underwent randomization within 48 hours, an imaging-based approach was used, and early initiation was compared with the 136-12 day rule. This trial estimated the risks of early anticoagulation, and this qualitative study should help guide future research and patient-specific decisions. The bottom line is that it's important to consider patient risk factors for both bleeding and thrombosis when initiating anticoagulation. At my practice site, patients are started as early as possible, typically within 48 to 72 hours within low moderate risk stroke and seven days of a moderate to high risk stroke on anticoagulation after it is determined that there is a low risk for bleeding. And the listeners, right, if you're looking at this study and you're a little confused, right, because if you're pulling the um, the ELAN abstract, you know, it it says, why are they reporting outcomes this way, right? It says the incidence was estimated to range from 2.8 percentage points lower to 0.5 points higher, right? So this is just more of a descriptive study. They're, they're presenting the confidence intervals. It's going to help researchers and things, but it does give note right? Like Bo was mentioning that, you know, early anticoagulation should probably appear safe. It might not have the benefit that we think, right? But more to come there. So great info, tuck away. I think this will probably be the basis of, of future research that really helps answer um, this question kind of moving forward. Now, it wouldn't be a six pack of studies without some sepsis, right? It's critical care. I always joke, if you're if you're taking a critical care exam and you don't know, sepsis is your answer like 40% of the time. So I want to highlight one of my favorite types of articles, which is a, a great 
JAMA review. Now, the authors did a PubMed search, right? So this is fluid therapy for critically ill adults with sepsis, a review. And you know, after my discussion with M- Melissa Thompson-Baston, I'd classify this as a narrative review. And as, as much as I enjoy the text of these, these review articles, I am here for the figures, tables, and graphics. And figure one is great. Features an updated Frank Starling model. I know all the cardiology pharmacists listening just got so excited. We're bringing in the Frank Starling curve here. But it's a, for those who don't know, right, it's a visual showing what we hope to do when we give IV fluid, right? We give fluid because the hope is that we're going to increase our cardiac output by increasing venous return and our right atrial pressure. And you see a linear approach up to a certain point, and then it starts to flatten out. And so you start to see the less increase in cardiac output, the more fluid we give. Um, and this is a cool visual of it. And the other part of the figure, it shows a three compartment model of fluid distribution. Uh, table one is a great review of hemodynamic markers and tests used for fluid challenges, right? It includes rationale. There's some comments or considerations, maybe patient populations you'd avoid using it in. What was it been validated in? Um, and how to apply these in use to your practice. Um, and for those getting into the critical care space, wanting to learn more, um, table three is a fantastic table highlighting those landmark articles on fluid therapy in critical illness. Um, and then of course, shout out to our fluid stewards out there because the article also includes a flow chart of the Rose model, right? And so definitely a zip drive worthy article for us here uh, published in JAMA. Now, we're going to stay in the sepsis realm here, and Bo's going to talk about a meta-analysis into one of our common treatment options in septic shock. This patient-level meta-analysis of low-dose hydrocortisone in adults with septic shock. A little bit of background on this. Despite widespread use of steroids in patients with sepsis, there is still a little bit of uncertainty about about the ultimate effect of corticosteroids and whether they actually reduce mortality. The Approaches and Adrenal Trials, two of the largest and most recent trials, investigated effects of IV hydrocortisone for seven days with conflicting mortality results. However, they did report earlier shock reversal and shorter intubation times. Previous meta-analyses into this question used trial-level data. This analysis will use patient-level data to explore individual factors that may alter the treatment effects seen with corticosteroids and septic shock. This meta-analysis, published in New England Journal of Medicine Evidence, included randomized control trials in adults with sepsis or septic shock receiving a maximum of 400 milligrams hydrocortisone or equivalent daily for at least 72 hours, with or without the concomitant use of flugicortisone. The primary outcome measure was 90-day all-cause mortality. In an effort to compare different treatment protocols, they used a fixed effects model to assess the use of flugicortisone versus none, steroid tapering versus discontinuation, and hydrocortisone continuous infusion versus intermittent IV push. The primary outcome and most of the secondary outcomes in this study were analyzed using a single mixed effect logistic regression model. 17 studies had patient level data and were included in this meta-analysis. Seven additional studies provided aggregate data. When comparing hydrocortisone to placebo, 
there was no effect in the primary outcome of 90-day mortality. The study-level characteristic found to be the best therapy compared to placebo was hydrocortisone plus flugicortisone, and this combination was actually associated with reduced 90-day all-cause mortality. Patients who received hydrocortisone had more days alive and free of vasopressor treatment compared with those allocated to the control group. Other outcomes, including days alive and free of ventilation and organ failure, as well as duration of ICU and hospital stay, were similar between these groups. Regarding adverse events, hydrocortisone was associated with a significantly increased risk of both hyponatremia and muscle weakness. There was no evidence of a differential effect of hydrocortisone compared with control on 90-day mortality based on whether it was tapered or discontinued or given as fixed duration, and whether it was initiated within 24 hours of shock. This meta-analysis found that hydrocortisone was not associated with reduced risk of all-cause mortality in a patient-level meta-analysis of RCT data. The study notes strengths of predefined protocol and comprehensive literature search, but does note limitations of a 20-year period between the first and the last published trials. The bottom line of this meta-analysis is that steroids should be utilized sparingly when possible in adults with septic shock. At my institution, stress-dose steroids are usually started once a patient is requiring at least two vasopressors to maintain their hemodynamic stability. So reminder for those for those at home right the approaches trial was the anon study that was using hydrocortisone and flugicortisone with that mortality benefit the adrenal trial right released just about the same time did not find that mortality benefit but used hydrocortisone monotherapy now uh in medicine sharing is caring because the authors only included trials for which they were able to contact the primary author and or sponsor. So literally peer-to-peer sharing. And then I emailed Dr. Anon for this very article, responded very quickly and shared it. So pay it forward, friends. And interpreting these study outcomes is kind of challenging because the abstract states that the only difference in a secondary outcome was difference in vasopressor-free days, but the confidence interval actually shows that it's not significant. And there were two to three, as Bo mentioned, that actually were significant. And then, you know, they use language like maybe associated with when describing adverse effects. But again, like those were the, like the risk of hypernatremia and muscle weakness, right? Those are the most significant results. Very strange. I don't think this is going to change practice depending on what you believe in one way or the other, if you're a if your team court or not. Um, but a great, a great more, more data looking at some patient level data to see if there was something that we may have missed in the bigger, in the bigger scheme of things. So closing out our uh, six pack of studies, the featured articles for June, 2023 is a pharmacist led point prevalence study on withdrawal in the ICU. Now, published in Critical Care Medicine, the ALERT ICU study, or the International Analgesia and Sedation Weaning and Withdrawal Practices in Critically Ill Adults, the Adult 
iatrogenic withdrawal study in the ICU. So it's that point prevalence study looking at international analgesia and sedation weaning and withdrawal practices in the critically ill uh, led by pharmacist Scott Ballesta from Wilkes University, who's just the best. This has been a long time coming as the investigators first started looking for sites to participate in fall of 2020. Um, and most of us, I think, are familiar with the concept that you have to wean continuous IV sedatives or there's a risk of medication withdrawal, um, also known as iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome. But the investigators point out there's been little published in adult patients pediatrics and neonatal have most of that data. So this was an international multi-center observational one-day point prevalence study. So each participating ICU selected one day to collect data from June through September of 2021. The primary outcome was the proportion of patients who had parenteral opioids and or sedatives weaned via an institutional protocol. So 11 countries, 87 hospitals, 229 ICUs, and over 1,500 patients were included. So uh, what a kudos to all the sites and researchers who contributed data to the ALERT ICU study here. Um, And the the results, they found that a little over about 11.7% of patients enrolled had their sedation weaned according to a protocol. And only around one-third of patients were using a weaning protocol out of the overall population who met criteria related to duration of use, right? So for those who were on continuous medications for a while, that would be eligible to have that weaning or withdrawal. Um, Only about a third were using a weaning protocol. And then, you know, only about 40% of ICUs had any type of weaning protocol in general. And you know, iatrogenic withdrawal syndrome protocols were even lower utilized with only about 10% of enrolled ICUs having one. So not only does this study show that weaning and withdrawal protocols are not universally prevalent and are infrequently used in ICU patients, um, but it shows a, a gap and a need for us as pharmacists to possibly um, start looking at, at creating and, and um, implementing these into practice. Um, and then lastly, right, shout out to the authors who typed out every site and con- contributor in the article, almost three pages of text. If you contributed, pull the article, search for your name, right? Control F. And you may be, you may be wondering as you're listening, like this isn't in the supplementary append- appendix folks. This is on the actual article PDF itself. So awesome job team and what a great six pack of studies um Bo, awesome awesome start and our next section here is our cardiac section also known as don't go breaking our heart All right, Bo. So our first article in this section focuses on pharmacotherapy in a critically ill patient population. So take it away. So this article is optimizing pharmacotherapy regimens in adult patients receiving extracorporeal membrane oxygenation or ECMO. This narrative review featuring pharmacists authors was published in JACCP. Due to pharmacokinetic changes that occur during ECMO, which can vary according to circuit component, support duration, and physical chemical properties of a drug such as lipophilicity and protein binding, treatment regimens may need to be modified to ensure safety and efficacy. 
the authors focused on analgesia and sedation, anti-infective medications, and anticoagulation. And I would like to highlight a few considerations that stood out to me from this review. For sedation and analgesia, international surveys report that fentanyl is the most commonly used IV opioid. Studies suggest that hydromorphone may actually be preferred in ECMO due to its lower lipophilicity, leading to less opioid use overall. Propofol, midazolam, and dexmedetomidine will typically require higher doses to achieve adequate sedation due to circuit sequestration. For antibiotics, beta-lactams are less likely to have altered pharmacokinetics by ECMO, but may still benefit from continuous or extended infusion dosing due to known pharmacokinetic changes in the critically ill population. Empiric vancomycin dosing regimens can likely be the same in ECMO patients as other ICU patients, while aminoglycosides may have reduced clearance in those receiving ECMO. The authors of this concluded that many antibiotic alterations in the presence of ECMO are more reflective of critical illness rather than circuit sequestration. For anticoagulation medications, there can be many coagulation derangements in patients who are requiring ECMO, but most patients still require anticoagulant therapy. Heparin is the most common anticoagulant used in ECMO. However, some retrospective data has shown that bivalirudin was associated with reduced in-circuit thrombosis and mortality. This review highlights the role of a pharmacist on the ECMO team and specific pharmacokinetic considerations in this patient population. Yeah, like Bo said, this is just a who's who of authors. Amy Zerba and Mitch Buckley, big friends of the pod. Uh, I like that they emphasize the use of ABCDEF bundles and the impact these have on patient outcomes in addition to discussing those PK considerations. Um, and then I specifically want to point out um, in the article itself, figure one and the where it talks about challenges and considerations when you're trying to identify infections in um, ECMO-supported patients. So um, I think in practice can be such a challenge. So it's cool to have this practical information given to us in the article. And then, you know, I'm, I'm team bival for ECMO anticoagulation. This may be the first time on the pod. Bo, what's your... Do you have a preference? Like, does your institution use one over the other, or do you have thoughts on what your favorite is? My institution does use bivalirudin, and we're actually looking into developing a protocol for a more standardized approach to dosing bivalirudin in this patient population. Love that. And if you're interested in Bo's first article, right, you want to keep listening for this next one because published the same month in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy, uh, also a who's who of pharmacist authors, a narrative review of the impact of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation on the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of critical care therapies. So, Jamini Patel, Kirsten Kuda, Lauren Ignary. So, uh, they hit, of course, the three categories that the previous article did, but they also review antiepileptics, antifungals, nutrition, and much, much more. And table one is an absolute must read. It is a comprehensive review of the medication properties and considerations when using an ECMO, right? Talking about like Bo was mentioning of lipophilicity and things. 
Um, so it highlights that in a really cool table. And I always like when synergy like this happens, when you have articles with similar but different aims published at around the same time. I just think it's, it's really neat here. So let's shift away from ECMO pharmacotherapy, but let's stay in the cardiac surgery world. And Bo, let's compare IV vasodilators used perioperatively in this patient population. The next study I will be discussing today is the comparative study of clobidipine to nicardipine for perioperative hypertension in patients undergoing cardiac surgery. This is also written by two pharmacists, and it provides a nice discussion regarding these two medications. Most current evidence comparing clobidipine to nicardipine comes from Eclipse trials that compare clobidipine to nitroglycerin sodium nitroproside, and nicardipine for post-operative hypertension management in around 1,500 cardiothoracic surgery patients. This single-center retrospective study published in the journal Pharmacy Practice included 67 cardiac patients who received clovidipine or nicardipine, with a primary outcome being the percentage of time spent within the patient-specific systolic blood pressure pool. This study found that patients on clovidipine had better blood pressure control with reduced length and magnitude of hypertensive episodes. Clovidipine may be better at controlling systolic blood pressure when the goal range is narrow and patients received less fluid volume in the clovidipine group, which can be beneficial to our patients with heart failure and kidney disease. Clovidipine was also found to be $70 more expensive per patient for 48 hours of treatment. And I would like to discuss a little bit of my institution. Clovidipine is not currently formulary at my institution. Nicardipine is our standard of care for cardiothoracic surgery patients. And I would say anecdotally, I think nicardipine probably is the IV vasodilator most are comfortable with. Um, The only thing I want to point out is with the volume in this study is that This institution utilizes 25 milligrams and 250 mLs of nicardipine. And most of my experience is with the 50, 50 milligrams and 250. So obviously, if we're we're cutting the concentration in half, that'll certainly affect the fluid results. You know, I imagine the authors hope to include more patients when broadening from post-op to also peri-op hypertension, but still was mainly post-operative use here. But just something to keep in mind, some more, some more evidence for consideration. So um, great kind of highlight there, um, Bo. Now, our next article shifts the focus from vasodilation to vasoconstriction in this matched analysis. So stay right here, Bo. What's your next article? So my next article today is angiotensin II for the treatment of refractory shock. This is a matched analysis. The ATHOS-3 is the trial that ultimately gained FDA approval for angiotensin II, and it did not find a difference in mortality in patients who received angiotensin II versus those who did not. The results of the study did lead to angiotensin II being used as salvage therapy for refractory shock after other vasopressors had been given. This retrospective single-center study published in Critical Care Medicine used a matched patient analysis to determine if using angiotensin II was associated with a reduction in 30-day mortality, which was the primary outcome. Secondary outcomes 
included 90-day mortality and receipt of new onset renal replacement therapy, as well as mechanical ventilation. 271 patients received angiotensin II, and 542 control patients received other catecholamine vasopressors and were matched and included. Angiotensin II was not found to decrease mortality at 30 days and found that patients with older age, higher lactate, a prior need for renal replacement therapy, and higher vasopressor doses were better predictors of 30-day mortality. This study recommends not using angiotensin II as a third or fourth-line vasopressor in those with shock refractory to high doses of first- and second-line agents due to a lack of conclusive efficacy. At my institution, angiotensin II is utilized infrequently for patients receiving three or more vasopressors to maintain hemodynamic stability, so similar to the salvage therapy that we see. Yeah, I have a hard time making conclusions with angiotensin II when it's being used as salvage therapy. You know, this is kind of in line with those other studies in terms of the vasopressor protocol and its place in therapy. But, you know, when ANG2 was started, the median norepi dose was 0.43 mics per kilo per minute. 70% of patients were on epi, norepi, and vaso. So sometimes it's like, was that, you know, uh, did we, are we throwing the kitchen sink or trying to use all these multimodal things too late? Um, so curious, uh, great info for refractory shock to kind of let us know about, um, and let's close out our, uh, cardiac section, right? I think our heart's still alive. No one's gone breaking it yet. Um, but we're going to close out with a new, new purge therapy in Impella ventricular assist devices. So our pharmacy colleagues in Orlando, Florida, uh, published an article in Annals of Pharmacotherapy analyzing bicarbonate-based purge solution in patients with cardiogenic shock supported via Impella ventricular assist devices. So think of an Impella as a sub-pump for your heart if, if you're unfamiliar with this device. It helps offload the left ventricle in cardiogenic shock. And unique pharmacotherapy to Impella devices is the purge solution, right? It's a fluid that flows through the pump to prevent device thrombosis and is controlled by the Impella pump itself, the fluid rate. So the fluid is a dextrose-based fluid that is heparinized. But right, there are times you may need a heparin-free purge for one reason or another. And a sodium bicarbonate-based purge solution has been used in patients with HIT. But this retrospective study included all Impella patients and compared heparin and bicarb purge solution with the primary outcome of Impella pump thrombosis. So 92 patients were included, and although there was no difference in pump thrombosis, the heparin-based purge was associated with more bleeding and supra-therapeutic APTTs. And those differences were despite patients in the bicarb arm having an almost seven-day longer duration of Impella runtime. Uh, great study investigating non-anticoagulant purge alternatives. I think a lot of us have heard about bicarb-based purge for a minute, and um, it's cool that we're getting some some info on that uh, published. Um, so shout out to uh, Kyle Bergen and David Ventura and colleagues for this Annals of Pharmacotherapy article. So as we switch gears to our next section, the title of this section has been ventilator blues for some time, but the theme is getting switched. And to be honest, I can't believe none of the listeners have suggested this yet, 
But the new theme of the Pattis section That's right. We want to be sedated. All right. So the first article is a review of an adverse effect related to a common critical care intervention. And this review from physicians in the Mayo Clinic in the Journal of Critical Care reviewed the literature on sedative-induced diabetes insipidus, right, which is an abnormality of antidiuretic hormone leading to a water imbalance, Now, they did a literature search to identify and analyze articles describing sedative-induced DI. And they also looked to identify their presenting patterns, right, to help assist in recognition of this phenomenon in the critically ill. Now, the literature shows that ketamine and dexmedetomidine have the highest number of published reports. And table one of this article goes into detail of all the cases. Now, notably, with with ketamine and dexmedetomidine, when the agent was discontinued, the time to resolution was around one day, whereas the others took a little bit longer. So great to save away for when you're searching for a possible medication-induced cause of an ICU problem. So A new transition of care concern for critical care pharmacists is the next article in our PADIS section. And this study in chest features a lead pharmacist author, uh, Lisa Burry, who is also an author in the Alert ICU study. And you may also recognize her name from the COVID-19 treatment guidelines along with Amy Zerba. So um, this article published in Chest is entitled New and Persistent Sedative Prescriptions Among Older Adults Following a Critical Illness. So listeners know the emphasis, right, on avoiding unnecessary sedatives while in the ICU, right? We, we know all the things. We're not going to go into that. But this study takes a unique approach to analyze in sedative-naive patients who survived an ICU stay, how common is a discharge sedative prescription and what factors are associated with prescribing them, right? So uh, they looked at data from Ontario, Canada, and the authors found one in 15 sedative-naive patients filled a new sedative prescription within seven days of discharge with, this is almost a bigger point to me, 55% of those same patients had refills. So risk factors they identified by far and away the biggest was discharge to a long-term care facility, followed by if you had a psych or geriatric consultation, if you were receiving mechanical ventilation, or you had week plus ICU stays. So keep in mind, retrospective, it's a population-based cohort study, but um, as you're as we're looking ways to prevent um readmissions or, you know, knowing that we're thinking about ICU patients, not just when they're in the ICU, but maybe when they've left as well, something for us to keep in mind. Now, we're going to close out the I want to be sedated section with a study looking at phenobarbital in alcohol withdrawal syndrome. But this isn't the comparator in this journal of intensive care medicine study. So, 
um, led by Lydia Ware and Jeremy DeGrotto, two pharmacists. This was um, a Journal of Intensive Care Medicine article, an evaluation of dexmedetomidine as an adjunct to phenobarbital for alcohol withdrawal in critically ill patients. So the single center retrospective study was done at Brigham and Women's Health in Boston, Massachusetts, and they studied the effect of dexmedetomidine, right, with a primary outcome of ICU length of stay. And they were looking at dexmedetomidine when it was added to phenobarbital in those critically ill alcohol withdrawal patients. So 112 patients were ultimately included. They had similar baseline characteristics, and they also received big boy phenobarb doses, right, with groups receiving somewhere between 550 and 600 milligrams of phenobarbital loading doses. And these authors found that patients who received dexmedetomidine in addition to phenobarbital spent more time in the ICU and the hospital. And on the surface, that actually makes sense to me. Because remember, dexmedetomidine, it is masking symptoms. It's not treating the cause, right? So it makes sense that when you discontinue that, you might have symptoms or other issues reappear that the dexmedetomidine was, was hiding from you in plain sight while that was on as treatment. So we're going to have a little mini section here on process cyclones. I know you're like, Nick, I'm tired of hearing you talking. We need Bo back. We're close, I promise you. So we're going to have a little mini section on prostacyclins and of course we're going to introduce this as every breath you take so one is a systematic review meta-analysis that i referenced in the ards episode with steve lemieux Um, and the other is a commentary on exposure of prostacyclins in pregnant healthcare providers. So both published in critical care explorations quickly into both of them. So leading off is a 23 study systematic review and meta-analysis from the Cleveland Clinic, right? The sole pharmacist authors, also the first author, Heather Torbick. And they acknowledge in the introduction, the authors do that the data with epoprostenil in ARDS is lower quality, but that doesn't stop us from using it, right? So the authors wanted to see if the data supports using epoprostenol to improve oxygenation and pulmonary artery or PA pressures. They found that epoprostenol use improved their P to F ratio as well as your mean pulmonary artery pressures, although very few studies reported the latter. And I think it's important this is published because it highlights the clear need and gap in literature. Um, And the supplementary appendix of this, table S7, it highlights the grade quality of the evidence summary table. And uh, the quality of these studies is very low with a serious risk of bias. So if we truly want the answer, prospective research is certainly needed when we're looking at those inhaled pulmonary vasodilators in ARDS. Now, lastly, right is a multidisciplinary commentary from Mass General Hospital discussing implications of a medication safety policy. So in response to a protocol change at their hospital, uh, which restricted pregnant patients from caring for patients receiving inhaled epoprostenol, uh, the article starts out by describing the literature demonstrating the safety of inhaled epoprostenol. But to me, the part that was most important, where I learned the most, was then going into a discussion on the implications 
of restricting patient care access for uh, pregnant providers. So highlighting the pressure of revealing a pregnancy earlier than they would want and you know creating undue stress if they interacted with this medication in an emergency before knowing that restriction. So great consideration, perspective, and uh, article in general from uh, Natasha Lopez and Alexa Nardone, epoprostenol exposure during pregnancy. So critical care explorations doing a great review on our pulmonary vasodilators. All right, Bo, we are back. And I'm going to be honest with you. I got a fever. And I think the only prescription is some ID articles. So let's highlight an article giving an update on stewardship in the critically ill. So the first article I'm going to be discussing is the Antifungal Stewardship in Critically Ill Patients by Pascale and colleagues. Antifungal therapy is commonly utilized in critically ill patients. This summary in intensive care medicine reviews data on invasive fungal infection management for antifungal stewardship in the critically ill. Utilizing our labs is very important. And so beta-D-glucan, a fungal cell wall component, is the first lab. And this is a diagnostic assay commonly utilized for invasive candidiasis diagnosis. However, due to the numerous variables that cause potential false positives, for those with low invasive candidiasis risk, a beta-D-glucan preemptive approach cannot be recommended at this time. It has been shown to be a useful rule-out tool, which can help with stopping antifungals as it has a high negative predictive value. The next lab is galactomannan, or aspergillus galactomannan, which is a cell wall component and is the classic biomarker for diagnosis of invasive pulmonary aspergillosis. But a definitive diagnosis of invasive pulmonary aspergillosis requires clinical radiographic, and microbiologic correlation. Using the galactomannan test alone may expose patients to unnecessary treatment. The authors then discuss antifungal de-escalation, and observational data suggests that de-escalation doesn't negatively impact patient outcomes, but simply reduces duration of antifungal treatment. The article also discusses how ID physicians on-site led to lower total days of antibiotic therapy, and how new technologies are emerging that will allow for faster identification of species in bloodstream fungal infections. In my practice setting, antifungal medications are utilized in patients with high risk for fungal infections, so those with an intra-abdominal process or immune compromise, or in those who are clinically worsening despite standard of care antibacterial therapy. Yeah, a really good review on on things we can be doing for antifungal stewardship in the ICU. The the only thing I want to add on is that 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 beta D glucan study you were referencing, the CandySep RCT, right? That showed that that beta D glucan driven strategy um, did not demonstrate a survival benefit um, compared to our our classic approach. 
Um, now, I want to interject here quickly and shift gears from antifungals to antibiotics with a international survey on antimicrobial dosing and monitoring. So it's a critical care international survey with a physician and pharmacist responders on behalf of ESICM and ESMID, uh, a study group for infections in critically ill patients. Um, and this was this took place in 409 hospitals in 45 countries, and they responded to this survey in the latter half of 2021. Now, what did the survey find, you may be asking? So it showed that most institutions utilize an extended infusion dosing strategy for beta-lactams, and around 40% of them use TDMs for beta-lactam monitoring. Now, compared to the admin ICU survey, which was done in 2015, it shows that internationally we're improving our administration and monitoring of antibiotics. However, uh, of note, when you pull that supplementary appendix, North America isn't a leader in beta-lactam TDM or extended or continuous infusions of these agents. So we certainly still have room to improve. But a really cool study in critical care, the International Survey of Antibiotic Dosing and Monitoring in Adult ICUs. So, but let's hit on your next article discussing medication allergy management in our ED patients. This article is Administration of Beta-Lactam Antibiotics to Patients with Reported Penicillin Allergy in the Emergency Department. It was written by a few different pharmacists. Up to a tenth of the general population reports an allergy to penicillin, which leads to overprescribing of alternative and potentially inferior antibiotic choices. This retrospective single-center study from New Jersey pharmacists published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine analyzed beta-lactam administration in patients who had a documented penicillin allergy. The primary outcome of the study was to assess incidence of adverse reactions or IgE-mediated reactions in those with prior documented penicillin allergies. None of the included 819 patients given a beta-lactam experienced an IgE reaction, and only one patient had their antibiotic discontinued due to a potential adverse effect, which was thrombocytopenia. 96% of the patients received either cefepime or ceftriaxone. Previous studies have demonstrated the safety of direct challenges with oral medications, and none of the patients in these studies, one with an N of 41 and another with an N of 20, experienced IgE reactions. The article notes that the PENFAST assessment rule can be employed in the ED. A reaction of five or fewer years ago, a reaction of anaphylaxis, a severe cutaneous adverse reaction, and treatment required for an allergy episode. At my institution, we're, we're employing a resident project to look at penicillin allergies and potential uh, removal of penicillin allergies to allow for broader treatment with antibiotics. Some may hear that almost 95% of patients receive ceftriaxone or cefepime and think that's too broad, right? Where's the cefazolin? But to me, I think this is actually a real-world analysis into antibiotic administration, right? We're seeing more third and fourth generation cephalosporins compared to our first. That's a fact. So I think this is a real-world look into the management of these. So I think this is a really cool study to highlight here. Now, we're mentioning, right, we're talking about cephalosporins here, 
let's shift gears and talk about a review article focusing on an antibiotic that sounds like it should be a cephalosporin, but it isn't, and it's used in the critically ill. So the next article that I will discuss is the treatment of critically ill patients with cefidrocol for infections caused by multidrug-resistant pathogens, and it's a review of the evidence. This Annals of Intensive Care article reviews the use of cefidrocol, which is the first approved siderophore beta-lactam antibiotic. Cefidrocol has a broad spectrum of activity against multidrug-resistant gram-negative bacteria, including drug-resistant strains of Pseudomonas acinetobacter and carbapenem-resistant enterobacteroides. The Sidero five-year surveillance program showed over 90% efficacy for carbapenem-resistant strains of Pseudomonas, Acinetobacter, and Stenotrophomonas. However, you must use a specific reference broth microdilution to avoid misleading results. With the unique broth, it is not typically added onto common testing panels. The standard dosing of cefidrocol is 2 grams every 8 hours, administered as a 3-hour extended interval infusion. The article notes that cefidrocol requires dose reduction in those with renal dysfunction, and it can induce CYP3A4 in the liver. Pharmacokinetics are not expected to be altered in those on ECMO, and dosing recommendations and continuous renal replacement therapy are based off the effluent rate. The article highlights research articles testing the non-inferiority of cefidrocol to various antibiotics. The APEX CUTI showed it to be non-inferior to imipenem psilostatin in complicated UTI treatment. The APEX NP showed it to be non-inferior to meropenem for resistant of nosocomial pneumonia. Credible CR showed similar rates of clinical and microbiologic outcomes compared with the best available therapy in the treatment of carbapenem-resistant pathogens, but it did show higher mortality in the cefidrocol group. Overall, cefidrocol has comparable efficacy to other standard-of-care antibiotics and those who are critically ill and has a comparable safety profile to other beta-lactins. Empiric use can be considered in patients suspected of having a multidrug-resistant infection especially in those with pseudomonas or carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. Cefidrocol is utilized at my institution. However, it is restricted to use for bacteria that have documented resistance to all first-line antimicrobials. So I want to point out that this is a 25-page review, right? We're not going to be able to discuss all of the highlights you're seeing this antibiotic more, even if you're not, you might be. So now is likely the time, the time to save this article. And this is just a, a, a great collection of references related to it. So uh, awesome highlight, Bo. What a, what a great fever section here. Um, and let's close out the, the fever or infectious diseases section, looking at a UGA C3 article analyzing cefepime administration. So Comparing IV push and IV piggyback, it kind of brings me back to like the IV piggyback shortage days. Um, but this uh, study in antibiotics, it highlights the importance of studying your local practices um, because uh, 
Outcomes of intravenous push versus intermittent infusion of cefepime in critically ill adults. So uh, UGAC3, shout out Susan Smith, Chris Bland, Trisha Brannon. Um, but this was a 285 patient study and they found that treatment failure occurred more often in patients who received IV push cefepime compared to those who received IV piggyback. So great study, great publication, um, helping us know, right? Not only getting the antibiotic and the right one is important, but how we administer it is certainly a very important thing here. And as we're nearing the end of our June 2023 literature review series, that's right, folks, it means it is time for us to go to the front of the fridge and to highlight all this amazing pharmacist-driven research that you all have done in the month of June 2023. Now, keep in mind, these are articles not voted on by me, right? Voted on by you. But we're actually going to start the first article off. It's a pharmacist-driven article published in JACCP entitled Racial Disparities in Pharmacy Postgraduate Residency Match Rates and Beyond Implications for Clinical Pharmacists. So it's featuring uh, Sarah Temi Sofeso and Jacinda Abdul Mutakabir. Um, on behalf of the farm grad wish list leadership team. So you may be asking yourself, what is the farm grad wish list? So it's an organization that looks to promote equity by sponsoring racially and ethnically minoritized, minoritized pharmacists and pharmacist trainees as they progress through the profession. So what an awesome mission. If this is something you think you'd be interested in. Be sure to go to farmgradwishlist.org. But um, the authors in this study, they highlight that they, they're looking at data from the 2021-2022 PGY-1 residency cycle. And it shows that only 36% of candidates who matched were non-white. And for anyone involved in the residency process at your institution, this should be on your reading list because they review what may be contributing to this inequity. They highlight that the ASHP residency standards will have a greater emphasis on diversity and inclusion starting with this upcoming recruitment cycle. Um, understanding that disparity exists, right, is the first step. And this article in JACCP helps with that. Uh, thanks again to the Farm Grad Wish List leadership team. Now, Winner of the Article 1 vote is the AJHP article, Precepting Strategies to Develop Trainee Resilience and Overcome Unexpected Challenges in Experiential Learning. So the authors from Western University College of Pharmacy in California give us precepting strategies and a discussion on resilience in this commentary. So I classically think of resilience as being things that we can't really change, right? But these authors in table one of this article, they highlight eight modifiable factors that are associated with resilience and examples of preceptor-led interventions on experiential rotations to help build this. Example, active coping for things such as stress management and emphasize, the authors emphasize making an action plan for dealing with stressful situations like code blues. Um, I'm not sure that 
we do as good as a whole as we should with discussion of feelings and emotions after code blue situations, right? I think those of us in the ICU and EM practice, we see it enough that it probably gets compartmentalized for many of us, but encouraging coping skills like this article suggests is a really, really good thing. Um, and it's a great commentary that argues we should consider resilience alongside other clinical competencies when giving feedback. Now, a runaway winner of the Article 2 vote was published in Pharmacotherapy entitled Bicarbonate as a Predictor of Successful Insulin Transition in Critically Ill Patients with DKA, a Retrospective Cohort Study. So, I always describe to, to learners with me, and this is just my opinion, if we're able to transition off the insulin drip in DKA and it needs to get put back on, it's just a bad look. It's frowned upon, but it happens, right? And these pharmacist authors from the University of Utah, shout out the Utes, right? They look at the use of serum bicarb levels rather than the classic anion gap when predicting transitions from IV to sub-Q and predicting which patients may fail that transition, right? And this retrospective single center study looked at MICU patients diagnosed with DKA that failed DKA sub-Q transition, meaning that IV insulin was restarted within 24 hours. So when a patient's serum bicarb was less than or equal to 16, it was associated with a four to five times odds of failing sub-Q transition. So a consideration in our critically ill patients from our Utah research colleagues. And the final winner in the pharmacist featured section, the front of the fridge, is a 2023 Annals of Pharmacotherapy study featuring John Allen, friend of the pod, Bethany Shoulders, and of course, uh, other pharmacists from Florida looking to investigate the rate and impact of papyracillin, tazobactam, or zosin dose adjustments in early septic shock. So entitled The Impact of Papyracillin, Tazobactam Dosing in Septic Shock Patients Using Real-World Evidence, an observation retrospective cohort study. So the authors collected data on patients with septic shock from January, January 2012 through June of 2019. And patients had to have received the antibiotic for at least 48 hours. And uh, the first 48 hours is also what was defined as that early phase of septic shock. So there were two groups that they were comparing. The normal group, which was receiving greater than or equal to 27 grams of zosin. And the low dose group receiving less than 27 grams of zosin in that 48 hour period. Uh, shout out the authors who do the math and let us know that uh, the normal group, 27 grams, Uh, That means that the patients received at least 3.375 grams every six hours for those first 48 hours. And of note, this is intermittent dosing, right? So those 30-minute infusions, not the four-hour infusions if you utilize those extended intervals. And the primary outcome was vasopressor-free days at 28 days. And uh, the authors ultimately propensity matched 608 patients. And they did find a significant difference in that primary outcome, vasopressor-free days. I mean, patients in the normal group had had their days almost cut in half, right? So that's a huge, huge difference. Um, 
So I know everyone sometimes has their own style about dose adjusting antibiotics in that early phase of sepsis, but I think this is some pretty high quality evidence, especially in those still using that intermittent dosing, that maybe we shouldn't be routinely dose adjusting beta-lactam antibiotics in those patients who the early phase of septic shock, right? That first 48 hours of their presentation. So uh, thanks to these uh, Florida pharmacists for this well done retrospective research study and helping us close the fridge on another awesome pharmacist featured section um, in our June 2023 literature review series. And then closing out our June 2023 literature review series is our grab bag section, which is arguably my favorite section of the whole episode. So the first article uh, discusses an issue that has been brought up by, ver- by various guests on the podcast, and that is publication hyperinflation. So a letter published in Intensive Care Medicine featuring Japanese authors asks the question, just how many medical articles are being published? Now, they focus just on articles in critical care, specifically systematic reviews and RCTs, and The figure on page two speaks a thousand words when you see the publication increase in graph form. Um, So, you know, focusing first on randomized clinical trials, right? Our RCTs, our gold standards. In 1990, there were 66. In 2013, there were 331. And in 2019, no, 2020... There was 309. So highlighting systematic reviews, this is where it gets interesting. In 1990, there were two. In 2016, there were 327. And in 2021, the number was 519. So clearly there's a middle ground between two and 519. And we need to find it, right? It's, you know, Tamiano said it best, right? If you make a meta-analysis of bad data, it's just a bad meta-analysis, right? I, I, I'm uh, characterizing or I'm uh, paraphrasing for him, but that's the ultimate takeaway. So we need to find better balance. And I think encouraging or having minimum publications kind of creates this hyperinflation of articles. And then I think my favorite trial that I've ever discussed was reviewing the CRAVE trial in a March 2023 episode. And uh, the New England Journal of Medicine Evidence Journal knew that I loved this so much that they had a bring it back. So they had a uh, almost like a commentary that's entitled Coffee Cravings and Clinical Research, My Experience in the CRAVE Trial. So It was a randomized crossover study to see the effects of caffeinated coffee on premature atrial contractions. So Dr. David Larson, he was a, uh, he was included in the CRAVE trial and he describes his coffee habit and trails off as he says, four to five cups. I'm there with you, David. Uh, Agreed. You just trail off, right? If you don't talk about it, it's fine. Now I knew he might be in trouble when he describes that he's never had any coffee withdrawal and he thought he was immune to these side effects, right? That's like when you're watching a movie and you hear someone say something, you're like, oh, this is going to come back in a big way. And I think his takeaway is how science can change one's perception. So this author didn't think coffee was affecting him physically, but through the results of the study, he found 
that his heart rate was elevated. He slept less and was more restless on days he had an afternoon coffee compared to those he didn't. So something to keep in mind, this is not an anti-coffee article for the record. There was no difference in the Crave trial, but uh, it's a fun article, a great perspective, a really fun way to end the June 2023 Literature Review Series. Bo, you did some heavy lifting, my friend. The last solo guest on a Literature Review Series uh, greatly appreciate all your time, effort, expertise. Uh, thank you so much for, for all you did for myself and the listeners. Thank you very much for having me on, Nick. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this experience, and it was great to be a part of the podcast. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks, man. Another big thanks to uh, Bo. Thank you so much. Um, as always, friends, the reference list with the articles that we discussed um, and more, it's in that podcast episode description wherever you're listening to this as well as in um, the on the website pharmacy2dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.